Are beavers really worth a damn? These furry agents of change create and maintain essential wetlands. No one's going to argue that they improve their environment for the better, but I'm starting to think that they change the lives of the people who work with them as well. Let me show you what I mean. So I'm on the line now with Dr. John Hadidian, who is a senior scientist for the Humane Society, the national office, and um, prior to this was the director of the Urban Wildlife Center. I really wanted to talk with you, John, about your work with wildlife and with beavers in particular. Oh, that's great. I'm looking forward to it. How did you start out and how did you get interested in beavers? I started here at the... uh Humane Society of the United States in 1995, and one of the first things I did was, and it wasn't—it just indicated how unsophisticated I was. I actually asked people what their needs were, uh-huh. and I immediately heard back from a whole bunch of people: "We need solutions to beaver problems. Wow. Uh, beaver are coming back, and they're everywhere, and and um, we need help." And uh, I said, "Fine, I'll see what I can do." I didn't know nothing about the animals really and I mean just as much as anybody with a wildlife background would know but um, none of the details about urban conflicts and things like that and I started thinking about them and looking into uh, where they were you know where they were, were returning to and what kinds of issues people had with them and that led me in 1996 to Peabody Massachusetts where an activist named Mary de Lavalette was battling with Peabody, her city, over beaver control. And Mary had, um, you know, an absolute certain understanding and knowledge that we didn't need to kill beaver in order to solve problems with them, but she wasn't quite sure what we needed to do. And she located a fellow up at the Penobscot uh, Nation in Maine named Skip Lyle. Wow. Who was putting together some very, very innovative concepts about how to keep beaver on the landscape, but prevent, you know, the conflicts that that occur with them. And there's really only two, as you know. Uh, They take down trees that sometimes people value. Yeah. And and they dam structures uh, and flood areas that people need access to or, for whatever reason, don't want to see flooded. Right. So that was how I got started. (laughs) So um, you called Skip and met with them? Mary called Skip. Mm-hmm. And I went up to meet with her and him, and at that point, uh, I began to first learn about the exclusion devices that Skip had uh, created and, and had invented and had designed and was applying up at the Penobscot and um, was bringing into Peabody as a potential solution there. Right. And we worked together, and I found some funding to help support him that, uh, you know, allowed us to put devices in in PVD and basically take the this is a controversy off you know issue off the table right. and get people thinking more about uh, kinds of humane solutions right you found funding to 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 do that work how did that work tend to hold up well PVD was not the greatest example i mean massachusetts for those who are you know, vested in issues relating to beaver has been always a, a problem with regard to the state's feeling that um, the ballot initiative that was passed back around the time that we started working on beaver there yeah. 
yeah. had taken away tools that they needed to control beaver populations. And there's been a political and a kind of a, a academic controversy over beaver in that state uh-huh. that has kind of tainted the you know the waters. Right. But right. we put in some you know amazing devices um, in PBD to try to regulate water levels to meet people's satisfaction within a very, very fine, you know, one or two or three inches uh, level. And, you know, they worked, but there wasn't the will we felt in in the people who were involved at the municipal end. They didn't have the will to see this as a solution. Well, surely you still encounter that. Yes. That sounds familiar to me. It's very familiar to any of us who have worked on on these issues, and it's an unfortunate thing because you would hope by now, and however many years later, people would begin to realize that, hey, we can solve these problems very simply. Yeah. They can leave beaver on the landscape, and they can do the things that they do, which we all know in creating and sustaining wetlands bring all kinds of, of environmental benefits. Yeah. Wow. So... Um, t- tell me the name of the woman who initially connected with Skip again, because I don't think I got it. Her name was Mary uh-huh. de La Valette. Okay. Wow. And is she still around? Uh, no, she moved uh, away, and I haven't heard from her in quite a few years. But, huh. um, and she was just a civilian or a person yeah, interested? She just a person who was interested, in, and we've run into this you know, many, many times. Uh-huh. Someone who just says this is not the way things should be. Uh-huh. Usually it's when the beaver are being trapped and, and killed. And, right. And uh, they want another solution and they propel the issue forward and, and stand up for the beaver and good things happen. Right. Are you, are you aware of any other states besides Massachusetts where certain traps have been outlawed? Because I feel like I've encountered them. Yeah, I think there's there's uh, trap bans now. I'm no expert on all of the types and all of the permissions that are created by the state agencies, but because uh, a lot of time you, you you'll see reference to an underwater set being allowed. Right. Uh, but these these body crushing traps that are so dangerous to companion animals, for example, uh-huh. are, are not allowed on land anymore, and, and there's quite a few states. Okay. They limit the size of the traps that can be set on land, and the, the big ones, the Conibear 330s that are and 220s that are used for beaver, are uh, basically restricted to underwater now. Uh huh. In 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 most areas. In many states, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm interested because it seems like Massachusetts has a history of saying we can't regulate beavers without those traps. And yet, the other states that have them outlawed, I don't hear that complaint or read that complaint as much. Yeah, there's um, there's a dynamic to all of these controversies about trapping and about beaver and about how to control them and how to limit their numbers. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, it it still exists today. It's the dialogue's been going on for oh, well over you know a decade and a half now, <laughs> and it's um, it's amazing that you know we still have these political impasses. Right, right. What, what do you think are the big reasons that are, are big challenges to um, to using slow devices at a city level? Like what slows down that process? What makes it not a possibility? 
I wish I knew because then <laughs> I could attack the problem. Yeah. You know more more exactly and specifically. I think there is something here, something working with issues relating to beaver that has uh, the quality of a tipping point. That it's at some point we're going to reach. Uh, a point where people understand that instead of spending thousands and thousands of dollars to send backhoes out to clean out culverts, uh, you can put this kind of fencing device in front of the culvert and protect it right. for years and years and years. Uh, we, we need to make an economic argument about that. We need to make the moral argument about it and the environmental argument that recognizes the value of beaver on the landscape. Right. Well, I... I I I like the idea of a tipping point. I hope it's not too far away. Um yeah, but it, it seems like um there are so many anxieties people have and so many reasons people want to not live with beavers that they are um very hard to exhaust those reasons. Yeah, there are attitudes and it may take a generation or so for those attitudes to really shift. Uh, I'd look at, you know, the kids that are are coming on as the important people with regard to exposure, education, and understanding because they're the the ones that will not come in with uh, a whole bunch of preconceptions about what needs to be done and how it needs to happen. Right, right. Well, so... Explain to me, like, your daily work. What do you actually do? Well, I do anything that relates to uh, primarily conflict resolution because we're the Humane Society. We hear from people who are seeing these, um, you know, conflicts resolved with deer, with geese, with beaver, with coyotes uh, lethally, and they want to understand, can we do it? without killing these animals, should we be doing it without killing these animals? Right. And we try to assemble the science for that. We have a fabulous, uh, you know, organization that has people who are capable of, you know, sending out messages and raising activists' Mm -hmm. awareness, as well as state directors who take on issues directly, uh, legislatively and otherwise at the state level. So we all work together. Mm -hmm. We provide information on you know, reasonable alternatives and humane right. solutions, and, right. and we have a, you know, a very strong advocacy component that puts those in place. Yeah. What would you say is the best part of what you do? Uh, the satisfaction I get from knowing I've helped an animal that an animal mm-hmm. might have died had I not been involved somehow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a really strong satisfaction. Do, do you ever get to be around the animals? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, before we uh, before I got on this call, I was out back here where there's a development project that's going to take out some woods that are right adjacent to our building, uh-huh. and uh, we're working with the developer to try to mitigate the impacts to the huh. creatures that live there. Wow, nice. What what do you not like about what you do? Well, you know, every day you you see or hear about some avoidable tragedy. Ah. Uh-huh. And that gets old and, and wears yeah. on you at times. Yeah. How would you, and I think that is a true statement for anybody that's been involved in animal advocacy, but what would you say is a good way to kind of keep yourself going? Like what what kind of way do you tell people to stay stay on the course? 
Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, there's a lot of uh, focus now in our work on this concept of compassion fatigue and, uh-huh. and working with people who simply, you know, get emotionally and, and, and mentally strung out, constantly trying to help and seeing sometimes that work and seeing sometimes that fail. And um, that's good. All of that stuff is making us more aware that, hey, it's okay to feel you know, strongly about these things, and it's okay to have these emotions. And then there's, you know, just the you know, constant turnover and the the next job, the next situation, the next right. thing you have to deal with. You you just kind of log out of what you were doing and log into something new. Right. And that keeps you going too. Yeah, oh, because the outcome would be different. The animals are different. The people right. are different. Yeah. I assume you've seen a beaver. I have. Okay, so tell me about the first time you remember really seeing one and what, if anything, surprised you. Well, let me think. Um, You know, I can tell you what surprised surprised (laughs) me, I think, initially. I can't remember or recall exactly the circumstance, but to see an animal that is kind of, you know, they're kind of large and ungainly, but to see them moving in the water is amazing. And um, I probably one of my very first experiences was responding to an oil spill and being um, on site and actually uh, having to grab a beaver who was on land, a female who was oiled and, you know, pretty badly compromised and kind of control her because the people I was with weren't used to handling animals and wild animals anyway and yeah. were a little bit uncertain about what to do. But she was extremely docile and I just kind of, you know, put my hands around her and then I got my, I, I kind of nestled, nestled her in between my my legs just to stabilize her and we got a cage and she went in and she went off to be treated. Uh-huh. Um, but she did seem to me to be kind of awkward up there. Uh-huh. Um, of course, she was compromised. But um, and then the next thing I see is a beaver in the water, and they're just you know amazingly graceful and yeah, and in an element in which they they clearly you know belong and are just uh, exquisitely beautiful to watch. Yeah, yeah. What would you say to other folks who think that they would like to be involved with what you do? What kind of background should they have? What kind of training do they need? I don't think anything special in this case. I think what you need probably the most of are people skills uh-huh. and an ability to, you know, not not to confront people over what appears to be, you know, just an impossibly irregular approach, but uh, to to talk to them about the need to solve problems humanely, to understand beaver and what they do, to recognize that they're not going to occupy more than, you know, a tiny fraction of a landscape, and that they belong in that landscape because they serve a very valuable role and and function there. Mm -hmm. Uh, One that we've lost, and and yes, they're changing the way things appear, but they're changing them back to what things should look like rather than, you know, the way they look now. Right. So, right. You know, I would I would say jump in. <laughs> see what you can do and see if you can make a difference and yeah. take the uh, tremendous amount of knowledge that exists out there with people like Skip and Mike Callahan and others who and Sherry Tippy who are doing the hands-on work. 
Mm-hmm. Know that those resources exist and that those people have succeeded and um, embrace what they do. Yeah, yeah. really want to ask you this question. And I didn't, it's not something I've asked anybody else, but how did the story of the Martinez Beavers appear on your horizon? I think I heard about it from Skip. You did? Oh, because we hired him to come out? Yeah, and he, he, either that or, you know, we see an awful lot of news clips come by and, and, um, somebody may have, may have pinged me with a news clip and said, look at this, here's the Beaver situation. Okay. But, um, I pretty soon, you know, got a, a lot of information from him and then began looking at, uh, you know, the newspaper articles and the other things that were being done to uh, publicize what you, you all were doing. Yeah. Well, um, it's it's really interesting. What do you feel like has not been done, or what do you feel like is is undone uh, around how, helping people live with beavers? What what piece needs to get done more? Well, we started back in 1997. Okay. With a series of workshops, it was uh, something the Humane Society of the United States put together. Had Skip Lyle as a technical expert, uh, uh-huh. Dee Mueller Schwartz as the beaver expert, and a fellow named Donald Hay, who was with the oh, yeah, the Wetlands Institute, right? And we had these amazing people who mm-hmm. were able to speak to the various issues of, you know, conserving landscapes, conserving beaver, simple solutions, weight technical fixes for beaver problems, and and we ran those. I think we probably had about eight or nine of those that we ran nationally in different places. And, uh-huh. and then in 2000, probably two, two or three, uh, they were more or less discontinued. Huh. Someone needs to reinvent that concept. Right. And be back out there with these these informational and educational workshops. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I think that's a really good thing. And I know that you were at the... State of the Beaver Conference in 2010. There's going to be another one in 2013. But um, I think it would be so great to have that in odd years or something on the East Coast. Yeah, it would. And um, the more of those, the merrier. We've been to the conferences in Europe, too. Uh, Skip and I went to at least one of those. I think he may have been to two. And so many good things happening. Yeah. That um, and, and your website is amazing in terms of connecting all of those dots. That that we just need to get, you know, more awareness going and get more publicity and get more communities looking at the resources that you and others provide. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's really good to be able to hand people resources, and it's also really instructive to see that people don't always want to use them. Yes, but they will. Uh, <laughs> it's just simply a matter of raising awareness and working toward that tipping point. And the tipping point is hopefully um, hopefully coming. You know, I, I really appreciate you talking with us. I think you have a perspective that we don't usually um, engage and uh, a kind of a broad movement uh, perspective, and I, I really appreciate that. And I really have been inspired by your work. So thank you for talking with well, us at Agents of Change. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for what you do <laughs> and all of the others who are, you know, learning from you and working with you. And I think it's amazing, and I, I think 
you know, as a concluding comment, I would only say that this thing, this conflict with Beaver issue, is one of the more easily solved that we have with wild animals in this country today. Right. And one of the ones that really does confer benefits that everybody can see and appreciate. And I honestly don't know why we haven't gotten further down the road, but I really do hope through programs like yours that we do. That time may change me